interested or if you know somebody who that might be a good fit for, then please come and touch base with myself or Tina or just write on your communication card and we'll follow up with that. Thanks. Excellent. Thanks very much, uh, Jared. Very good. Well, look, why don't we put our hands together, Bucks, why don't you come and just share and can carry on with your series. Thanks. Catch you, man. It's so good to be back. Get some sleep for a start. As many of you know, I've just been on the east coast of the United States where each year uh, I do some training. And there I was with uh, the largest apologetics conference in the world looking at the latest archaeological evidence that the archaeologists are digging up, looking at the latest scientific evidence uh, which supports the evidences for God, be it that in astronomy or microbiology. Uh, thirdly, looking at some of the social uh, issues around cisgender and other such things like that and how to deal with those and religious freedom. So I had the tremendous privilege of taking literally one Sunday, which is when I was off, uh, went to the other side of the States and stayed with a little family with four kids, four under five. Think about that, mums. Four under five. And these guys had such stamina. They would be staying up till 2 a.m. in the morning and had a bed at 6. I don't know how they did that. I mean, I was, had no work the next day, but was kept awake by copious quantities of coffee and all of these uh, lectures, but it was a great time. And so today, what I want you to do is can, how, how many of you got an outline? Can I see if you've got an outline? Can you lift it up? Okay, I'm glad to see you've got one each. If you haven't got an outline, I would highly encourage you to go and get one because one of the things we try to do in this church is to pass on skill and the ability to do these things so that in turn you can then pass it on to your children or grandchildren. Today we're going to learn a skill. And, I want, and you, can't, you can't come here and expect to arrive at church. This is great. I see a church that takes action. More bulletins. This is good. I'll wait. Please go grab one. Please make sure you have a pen too when you come to this church. If you do not like writing, this is not a good church for you. <laughs> If you do not like learning, this is not a good church for you. This is not about entertainment. This is about transformation. Okay. My goodness, my computer's forgotten what I look like. Hello. There we are. Right. So I'm excited today to teach you some practical skills. By the way, these skills I taught to my children. And I teach to other people as well. So I have a list of skills and a list of attitudes I wanted my children to leave home with. This is one of them. So let me put this in context. When the, for those of you who are perhaps new today, first of all, welcome. I'm glad that you've come. We're in part number four of a series I'm doing called Text Messages. And it's how to study the Word of God. The first week I looked at, just for review, I looked at the seven reasons why you can trust the Bible archaeologically, historically, scientifically, and theologically. The second week, I looked at the seven reasons it was on foundations, and the seven reasons God gave his word, and the difference it can make in your life if you do what it says. Remember, if you read it and you don't do it, it's like going to the doctors and not taking the prescription that he gives you. It just sits on the shelf. The third week, I looked at the concept, the biblical concept or the theological concept of illumination. How does God show me his will through his word? Now, if you missed any of those, you can pop on to newhope.net.nz and you can listen online that many of you are doing now. And you can look there or you can download it from iTunes. Now, today, 
I want to look at the principle of observation. The Bible is a supernatural book. And you can never mine all the gold out of it. Every time I look at a passage and I look at it again and again, I dig deeper and deeper. Now today, if you learn these principles, if you do this, you're about to see points and principles in the scripture that you have never seen before, if you do this. Now there are many ways of studying the Bible. The only way they typically differ is the type of questions you ask. So today I'm going to drill down on four questions four types of questions that you will use in every type of Bible study. doesn't matter what type you take. Now, the key to good Bible study is asking good questions. If you're just reading it, you're not studying it. That's the first point I want to make. So here we go. So I'm just going to quickly look at the, the four types of good questions. First of all, observation. What does it say? What does it say? And simply, I write down what I say it is saying in my own words. Observation is the very first step. Observation. We're going to go back and drill down on these. The second is interpretation. Okay, that's what it says. What does it mean? What does it mean? Now, here's what I, the attitude I want you to take. As you're doing this today, I want you to take this as if you're going to teach this next week. So your job is to teach this lesson to somebody this week or next week. So take notes accordingly. So what does it mean? You know, and sometimes we have to allow for whether this is a metaphor or an analogy or a letter. For example, if somebody was to find a, a piece of paper and it says, um, Martin wrote, Ian was pulling my leg. And 10,000 years later, somebody found this document and said, um, Ian was pulling Martin's leg. Now, uh, if you didn't understand some of the nuances, somebody might think he's literally yanking on my leg, right? But no, I'm actually saying in that case... He's teasing me. He's, he's, he's having me on. That's, the, that's what we would be saying. For example, the word pin. We need to understand things about interpretation. The word pin. If I said the word pin, do you know how many definitions there are of the word pin? 60. Am I talking about a bowling pin? I'm talking about a safety pin. Am I talking about being pinned to the ground, wrestling? And we can go on and on and on and on and on. You need to understand what the context is. The context makes all the difference. Third, we're going to look at correlation. What do other verses shed light on this? Explanation. How do they explain this verse? Now, the best commentary on the Bible, by the way, is the Bible. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. You use the Bible to interpret the Bible. And then fourth, we're going to look at application. Okay, so I've learned all this. What will I do about this? And that's the most important because the Bible isn't given just to inform us, it's given to transform us, which is very different. So when you sit down to study a passage of Scripture, those are the four things you do. And today, right now, I'm going to show you how to do that. So I've grabbed a passage in Philippians chapter 2, verse 19, which at first blush seems a little innocuous. That means, huh, what? What's going on here? Let me give you a bit of background first. The background, Paul is in a prison. He's in prison in Rome for doing some missionary work. And he's due to appear before Caesar. Now he's writing letters and he starts because he's got lots of time. See, God even uses the tough things in your life in unexpected ways. He's in prison and he starts to write, in this case, to Philippi, which is in Greece. 
And, then, and these are real places. Philippi, actually, there it is there. There's some of the ruins of Philippi. You can go there today, to Philippi. Here's another one. They loved entertainment. That's a decent-sized stadium. You can go there today. All of these places. So when he was writing um, to, uh, to, to the church in Philippi, this is the book of Philippians. When he wrote the book of Corinthians, first and second Corinthians, he was writing to a, a, a church at Corinth. You can go there today. When he wrote the book of Romans, he was, in, he was writing to the church in Rome. These are real places that you can see today. So, the background is this. The church at Philippi had taken up a love offering to send to Paul. He's a long way from Greece to Rome. And he's writing, basically, a very polite thank you note. Let's pick this up. Follow along with me on the screen. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive the news about you. I have no one else like him, that's Timothy, who takes a genuine interest in your welfare, for everyone else looks out for his own needs, interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. I am confident of the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is also necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you have sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad and may have less anxiety. That's a good thing to have less of. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor men like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. Now, stop. Everybody look up here. At first blush, you may go, okay, and carry on. Right? Is that fair? It's a thank you note. That's what we're looking at there, son. A thank you note. That's all it is. Then you might ask, why did God include that in the Bible? What is there in there that God wants me to know? Because no word of God is ever there by accident. Why is that? Just one of those passages there in the Bible. It's like a personal note between a couple of friends. Now, it's very tempting, and maybe you've been there, to just kind of skip over the passage like this and just write it off. Not meaning nastily, but just not dwell on it a bit. And that will be wrong. Because we haven't done the observation and interpretation to get the meaning out of it. The Bible says on the screen, all Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives, it straightens us out. In other words, we're a bit messed up. And it teaches us to do what is right. Now, just a sidebar before we even get into this. Here we go. Before we do this, did you know that Epaphroditus means from Aphrodite, 
which was a heathen god. So whoever his parents were, odds on, he came from a highly non-Christian, actually idolatrous family. On the screen, Romans 15, 4, NIV version. For everything that was written is to teach us so that through endurance and encouragement of the scripture, we might have, here's a beautiful word again, hope that my wife spoke of last, uh, the week before last. Hope. Now, so God wants us to get some encouragement and hope out of this passage that we've just read. That's what the scriptures say. That's consistent logic. And if you didn't, it's because you probably haven't learned to study it yet. You just read it. So today I'm going to teach you how to do this. So first, let's do this practically. Let's start with observation. What does it say? Now, there's nothing fancy here. Nothing fancy. But you need to write these things as you're going through it. What does it say? Three basic things he mentions, which is reasonable. One, he, uh, he, Paul intends to send two men to the church at Philippi. That's what it says. I read that. How do I know that? Because in verse 19 he says, I hope to send to you Timothy. Well, one. Two, I think it's necessary to send Epaphroditus back to you. Two, in verse 25. So that's very, nothing fancy. He's going to send two men to the church at Philippi. Second thing I realize is that Paul endorses them as role models. Hang on, hang on. Paul endorses them as role models who deserve honor. So in verse 20, how do we get there? Timothy says, I have no one else like him. Woo, that's a pretty strong commendation. And secondly, in verse 29, Epaphroditus, welcome him, honor men like him. So I'm kind of getting curious about now, thinking, what is so special about these two guys? That's what I'm thinking. Notice both of them say, like him. Did you see that? Like him, like him. It's repeated twice. God is emphasizing something here. Now, Paul, think about this, is one of the greatest Christians in the entire New Testament, and he gave them the greatest endorsement possible. Why? We don't know yet, but we've observed that he did. What are they like? From the observation, we can see five characteristics listed in the outline. In verse 20 through 21, Timothy says, he takes, of Timothy, he says, he takes a genuine interest. That's a mark. That's a characteristic. In verse 22, Timothy has proved himself. In verse 25, Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier. We're going to drill into that. 26, Epaphras longs for you all and is distressed. And 27 through 30, again, he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life. There are some characteristics of sin. Now, what does all this mean? Actually, this is a very powerful passage, especially for men. Especially for men. But it also applies to women. So I'm going to turn this around now and extract the models or five marks of a man or a woman of God from that passage. Five of them, which you are going to distill right now. It'll identify five characteristics that we are to build into our lives. And also when we see those displayed in other people's lives, we are to honor those when we see those characteristics and attitudes coming out. This is what it's going to say. So I read it and I write down what I saw. Paul's talking about two guys. He's going to send them back to Philippi. He endorses them as role models, and he says we ought to honor them. And these guys have, here it is, the five characteristics of a godly man 
or a godly woman. Let's pull them out. First characteristic of Timothy. Going back to verse 21, this is how you do study. Not just reading. Some of you have done reading for too long. Now God wants to move you forward and to get you to study. I have no one else like him. And of all the people I know, nobody is like him. Why? Because he takes a genuine interest, not fake, not shallow, in your welfare. For everyone else looks out for his own interests. That's selfish. That's rare. That's unusual. Now, one of the ways you interpret Scripture is comparing to other translations. Now, I want to untie a few knots for some of you about other translations. And some of you have gotten yourself into a royal knot over this. Why are there so many translations? Let me give you as tight as I can. No single word can be explained one other word in a language. So let me tell you this way. Let's say it this way. If you take a phrase, there are 11,280 Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic words in the Bible. 11,200. How many? The average English version only uses 7,000. Did you know that? So there's a gap, right? How does that work? Well, let me give you a very obvious example. The word love in New Zealand, Anita, we use for everything. I love fish and chips. I love my wife. I love the Lord. It's the same word. Now, in Greek, there are four different words for love. Firstly, eros is where we get the whole idea of sexual love or erotica. Second, storge, which means strong love in Greek. It's a second type of color to the word love. Third, philio, which means brotherly love. That's where we get Philadelphia, philio. And then four, agape, which is unconditional love. There's four words for one of ours. And they're all used in scripture, those four words. So there are different words where we only have one word. For example, today's English version of the exact same scripture, I look at that and I look, okay, what does that say? It says, Timothy genuinely cares for you. Others only care for themselves. You see, you're getting a bit more color to what he's getting at here. The Phillips version says, they're all wrapped up in their own affairs. I love that one. <laughs> I get that. <laughs> they're all wrapped up. I have nobody else like Timothy because everybody else is all wrapped up in their own affairs, but he doesn't. He genuinely cares for you. Therefore, we have the first characteristic of a godly man or a person. A godly man is caring. He's not wrapped up in his own affairs. He's not thinking of himself or herself all the time. An ungodly person is wrapped up in their own affairs, only thinking about themselves all the time. Flip it around. Math has got some great application in theology. You can flip it around, get the inverse, and you get the truth driven home a different way. The fact is, everything in our culture teaches us to be self-centered. I could not believe the adverts when I went back to the U.S. It's all about you. You deserve it. You know, the new car, this, that, the other. And it was so egocentric and narcissistic, whew, I nearly wanted to throw up. Anyway. 
an unselfish man is rare. We're usually wrapped up in our own business. Now, at this point in time, I just want to say something to young ladies. Because as a pastor, and I have a beautiful daughter, who have a stunningly good relationship, and I treasure just beyond belief. I want to talk to you just very briefly, young ladies, about how to search for an unselfish man. Okay? Now, grandmas and grandparents and mas and pas, you can drill this into your own kids too. But if you find a man who just talks about himself, run. All he can talk about is him. Forget him. He's egocentric and immature. If you find a man, I want to know, and I watched, does he open the door for my daughter? If he's just thinking about himself, just take note of that. Demerit point. Does he go out of his way to make you feel safe? Here's an important one. Elizabeth, does he ever ask for your opinion? Some men have got this arrogance that they never listen to their wives. A dumb mistake. But don't even become a wife until you're sure he wants to hear what you have to say. Now here's a, young, here's a tough one. And I'm going to be real straight with you girls. Here it is, like I talk to my own daughter. Does he, if you're unmarried, ask you for sex? And does he try and crowbar you and say, if you love me, you'll let me? If you ever hear that line, you say, no, 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 no. If you love me, you'll wait. Remember that line. If you love me, you'll wait. Now, if he pouts about that, he's a double loser. If he sucks his thumb, wash your face, get up, and go somewhere else. Will he cancel his plans if you are sick and you need some help? Here's one that drives me nuts, and I'm very leery of guys who are obsessed with their appearance. Obsessed. I'm not saying be presentable, put some deodorant on, brush your teeth, always. But I'm saying obsessed. You know what I'm saying there, girls? If he's obsessed with his appearance, be careful. And this is, uh, and this is really important. Does he pick up his mess? I said, honey, you're not there to be his mother. The boy better know how to clean up after himself. You're to be his bride, not his mother. Anyway, don't elbow anybody now or look at anybody else. A godly man is a caring man. Okay? We got that? Get it? Get it? Caring. Good. Okay. Next verse, verse 22. Timothy has proved himself. Because as a son with his father, that's got a very familial touch, he has served me with the, in the work of the gospel. He's been proven, he's tested, he's verified, he's checked out, he's determined, and he's reliable. Remember to say a prayer for Tim. He went through the grill. <laughs> My Tim. Look at this. God's word says, you know what kind of person Timothy proved to be? He proved to be. He's proven trustworthy. He's not wishy-washy. He doesn't flip-flop. This man keeps his word. 
Now, the greatest ability I look for is dependability. I even buy tools that have lifetime warranties. I love dependability and reliability. Today, we need men of conviction and character that are consistent in values. Not act one way with the guys on the golf course and another with another set of people. They're not moody, but they are consistent. They're committed to God's standards, most importantly, consistently. That's what we need consistency. So therefore, we deduce from that, a godly man is consistent. Next verse, verse 25. I send back to you Epaphroditus. Now look at these words. My brother, a fellow worker, and a fellow soldier. There's a triplet here. Who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. The good news version of the part I want to emphasize says he has worked and fought by my side. I, when I go back to the States, I'm often with a lot of Marines. And there's an tremendous camaraderie with Marines because they have fought together. Never leave anybody behind. And they, even after they finish their service and they've retired, the retired Marines spend a lot of time together. Now, Paul uses three relational metaphors in that verse. Brother. Fellow worker, fellow soldier. And each of these metaphors has something in common. And what they have in common is the word cooperation. They cooperate. Because he said the Christian family is a family, it's a fellowship, and it's also a fight. See, the word family here, he says a family. We're related. By the way, the word brother and sister, if you go back and check in your Bible, is used 133 times. And for hundreds of years, Christians used to refer to each other as Brother Ben or Sister Michelle. You know what? In some churches in the United States, they still call, you walk up, it's Sister Michelle. Yeah. Brother Constant. That's what they'll say. And there's something in that. Why? Because the church really is a family. It really, 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 really is a family. Secondly, a fellowship. We've been given the same task and the same mission. And we are to work together and we are fight together. That's the mission we've been given. And we need to put our back into that. And then a fight. Comrades in arms in a battle. And by the way, we have the same enemy. And his name is small s, Satan. We, we support each other. We defend each other. We encourage one another. And that's one of the main purposes of small groups. So out of this, we can deduce that the godly man is cooperative. He knows how to work with other people, not a lone ranger. He's not difficult to work with. He's a team player. Now, Paul, if, if you'd allow me this this description is a spiritual superstar in one sense. But yet he, even he recognized we are more effective when we work together. We are more effective. So therefore, write it down. Our godly man is cooperative. Next verse. Verse 26, he, for he, Aphroditus, um, Epaphroditus, that should say, longs for you all and is distressed because he heard, because you heard he was ill. So hang on, what's going on here? This guy is walking the offering from Greece to Italy. That's about 1,300 kilometers walking. There were no trains, no jets. Very few people could afford 
um, uh, transport of much time. He walks and he nearly dies of sickness in Rome. And word gets back to Philippi. And his reaction is he doesn't want the guys back in Philippi to be distressed. He's distressed because they're distressed. He doesn't want them worrying. It's kind of like your mother, you know. She doesn't want you worrying that she's sick. You know what I'm saying? It's exactly what's going on here. And he's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about his concern that they're concerned. Sounds like your mother again, right? (laughs) So the fourth characteristic of a godly man is he is considerate. Considerate. He's concerned about the feelings of others and their emotions. He's thoughtful of the effect of his words and his actions. Now, I just want to say something here. From time to time, it's rare, but it has happened. I've been sitting across from somebody, and I said, Ooh, that's a little harsh. You're never persuasive and you're abrasive. And their reaction was, that's just who I am. Yeah, rude. You are rude. And immature. Babies say what they think. If they want some food, ask Ben. Wah! They'll let you know there's no filter on their mouth. There is never a case for Christians to just say what they think and just vomit some vitriol out of their mouths. It's immature and rude. So, a godly man is considerate. Now, on the screen, I want to take a slight move to the right on this one. The Bible says in 1 Peter 3, 7, Husbands, be considerate of your wives. Be considerate as you live with your wives. What does that mean? could mean anything from helping her out, bringing the groceries in, washing the dishes. Be considerate with her emotions. So I thought... Let's get a little bit more specific. As your pastor, I thought I'd show you three brief diagrams to help you understand and be considerate of the opposite sex. This is men and women. So first slide, I want to show you. This is the difference when it comes to sexual and psychological differences between men and women. Men are pretty simple. They have a top switch. On, off. That's it. On or off. On the bottom side of the woman, you've got to get all of the knobs turned exactly the right angle for things to work. <laughs> I see some people smile and they get the idea. It's pretty enormous, but they've just got to be right. How about the second one? How men and women make decisions. This is very different. This is going to get a pair of pants. The man walks in the blue line, goes straight in, straight to buy the pair of pants. Boom, done. It costs, it takes six minutes and a total of $33. The woman walks in, wanders all the way around, circumnavigates the mall, through all those doors, and takes three hours, 26 minutes, and costs $876. Yes, I see. This is the difference between the way men and women think. But we need to be considerate of that. Three, the chances of a man winning an argument. Mikey, are you listening? (laughs) Before you get married, it is 50-50. Because she's considerate of you. In the engagement period, which is where you are right now, especially when it comes to wedding celebrations, Alex... That drops to about, you know, 25%. Now, after you've been married, whoo, <laughs> it's over, baby. <laughs> I heard of a guy that was married 72 years, and he was asked, what's his secret? He said, oh, just two words. And he said, what are those words? 
And the words are simply this. Yes, dear. <laughs> the godly man is considerate. Not bolshy. Not overbearing. That has no place in a Christian marriage. None. Zero. Next verse. Verse 27 through 30. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. Almost died. Now look at this. Careful, careful. For the work of Christ. Risking his life to help make up for the help that you couldn't give me. So the fifth characteristic is a godly man is courageous. You may want to put fearless, but courageous is probably the best word to keep with all the C's. Now note what he was courageous about. This is important. And a lot of people miss this. What was he courageous about? He wasn't courageous for his benefit, his own benefit. He made a very inconvenient journey for the church. He took risks for the benefit of the cause of Christ. That immediately says, what risks am I taking for the cause of Christ? Not for my own benefit. Epaphras put the cause of Christ before his own comfort. Walking that long is not an easy job. And they walked in sandals. Paul is in prison, 1,300 kilometers that way. The Philippian church in Greece takes a love offering to help him out over there. No planes, no trains, no cars. So Epaphroditus volunteers to be the courier. I'll do it. And he nearly dies. So what we see here is in spite of the arduous journey and in the illness that he suffered, he was committed to finishing what he started. No sissy britches. No Mary Tetel. He was committed. He was a man's man. Now, if your pastor was to ask you to walk 1,800 kilometers, <laughs> just feel that for a minute. This is what we're talking about here. This is the type of man he was. Now, not, there aren't many men like this today. They would be rare. Most say this instead. Hey, I'll live for Christ when it's convenient to me. Forget church when the All Blacks are on. Nah, that's not convenient. Why do we have church at that time? And they come late and they leave early. And what they're really thinking there is it's more convenient for moi, me. Compare that to the attitude of, well, I want to be here early to help serve and help warmly welcome people. And God uses courageous and risk-taking people who serve him, even when it's inconvenient and certainly uncomfortable. Those who put service before security. And that there is where God wants to touch some of your hearts. Taking risks for God's kingdom. Serving others with reckless abandon and God. In fact, in verse 29 it says, literally, hazarding his life. That's a gambling term, if you actually look into the Greek there. To stake everything. These are not just little flutters. He's bitten the farm. Epaphroditus risked his life for the sake of Jesus Christ. So here's my question to you this morning. Is your commitment to Christ deep enough to cause you to risk everything?
Today, some in Christianity become soft. Where there's no challenge, there's no commitment, there's no sacrifice, there are no heroes. But I thank God for the incredible example of men like Epaphroditus who was filled with courage and commitment. Who spread the gospel through his efforts, and would ne- that would never happen without people like that. It won't spread today without men and women of courage. Now, he could have said this. Hey, I'm a business guy, which he was. I can't take time off work. That's two months to walk there and back. I've got, by the way, I've got kids too, and I've got to get, do all the stuff around my house. I've got a business to run. And you're asking me to leave my business and take two or three months off to travel to another nation to help another church? No, 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 no. I've got my career, my agenda, who is really God. They get to call the shots. Epaphroditus did not say that. good friend of mine, Dave, who was in my church in Orange County. He's around 70 now, and whilst others are off, retired, and playing golf, or making more money, my friend Dave is out building churches, and doing trips like Epaphroditus. He's putting service before security. Building churches around the world, in the jungles of Brazil, Guatemala, Alaska, and Iran. And by the way, he paid for himself to go there. That's a man worth emulating. Observation. What does it say? Interpretation. What does it mean? Correlation. Number three. What other verses explain it, we might ask? Well, Timothy, you think about Timothy. Well, there are two other whole books written to Timothy. 1 and 2 Timothy. He became a pastor at Ephesus, which is another place you can go and see. Epaphroditus, well, he's mentioned before, and he delivered the offering from Philippi in Philippians chapter 4, verse 14 through to 18. Now, what does the Bible say about the qualities mentioned? About being caring and consistent and cooperative and considerate and courageous. That's what you need to do that. You need something called a concordance. How many of you know what a concordance is? Can you see your hands up, please? Okay, how many don't? Okay. A concordance is like a, is like a big fat book which has got every word listed in the Bible. So, for example, if say you use the New International Version, the NIV, it's got every one. If it's got the word exhaustive in there, that means it's every single word, including the viz. So you can do a study on viz if you want. <laughs> every study, every reference where it is. So you need a concordance. Now, what I tend to do, is, is use a Bible program. Can you just flick the next verse, please? No, the next slide. Okay. But hard to see. This is straight a, a shot from my screen there. What am I studying there? I am jeepers. I can't even see that. Oh, here it is. I'm looking up the various versions of the scriptures. So every day when I study, I have some software, which you can get. It's really cheap. It's only about 40 bucks. And you can stick it in there, and you can have this. I've got, I think it's 25 different versions of the Bible. I, these are the ones I mainly use. I can add more to it if I want to. But I can look at that, and I can look all the way across, including the Amplified, and see 
that bring, uh, which words bring out the best color in the Bible? Well, where am I going? In, in the particular verse, there we are. Now, the sec- so one, that, that's one scripture, so I can see all the different versions. The second way I use my software, n- next slide, is if I'm looking at the word considerate. So I type in the word considerate at the top there, and it shows me there's 43 different ways that that is used in the, in, in, in the, in the Bible there. All the way from, actually all the way, that's just in the New Testament. 43 different ways, and I can look at them. See all how they're highlighted? So I can easily get my arms around all the scripture. The beauty of this is it stops you taking verses out of context. You can see what the whole of the word of God says on something. That's why if you're not careful sometimes when you just take a verse, it's dangerous. You always need to read around the verses and what else the other scriptures say about that particular subject that you're studying. So that's another way I use software to get my arms. Because if I'm going to study, I need to get serious. I mean, I don't know anybody who goes to university and doesn't buy a book. They ain't going to pass. They're going to fail. So if you want to study, find yourself something there. And for example, if I want to find out what else the Bible says about this guy called Timothy, I'll just jam it into my, into my scriptures there, and I'll see there that there's 25 other occurrences of where the word Timothy's used, and it can just drill down and look at those. Does that make sense? That's how I use it, though. It's very useful in correlating what other parts of the scripture say about a particular subject, person, or passage. So observation, what does it say? Interpretation, what does it mean? Correlation, what do other verses, do other verses help explain it? That's correlation. Don't forget that. Otherwise you'll end up with contradictions in your head, which really aren't contradictions. They just need to be harmonized. And fourth and fifthly, sorry, fourth and lastly, the last step in Bible study, and this is the most important, it's application. You need to do it. So what will I do about it? This is the most important step. I've often said this, and you may want to write this down to help remind you, you only believe the parts of the Bible you do. You may want to write that down somewhere. It's not enough to just study the Bible. Study will give you a big brain and a little heart. And before I've used um, a particular acronym in this church, and we use this in class 201, about nine questions, which I'm going to finish with, that you can use for any, and I'll apply it to this verse and we're done, to any scripture. And it's the Space Pets acronym. And there we ask in every verse, is there a sin to confess? Well, on this one, maybe, but probably not. Is there a promise to claim? No. Is there an attitude to change? Yeah, there is an attitude I need to change. There's definitely an attitude I need to change in this. Is there a command to obey? Yes, on a man like this. Is there an example to follow? Absolutely. There are five clear examples of a man that's consistent, caring, cooperating. He's considerate and courageous. That is very strong application from this. So I would look at this and then say there are three things. There's a command to obey, which is honor. There's an example to follow. There's five of those examples. And there's an attitude to change. You bet. Then I write the personal application out in the sentence about what I'm going to do about what I've just read. It must apply to me. Not, well, they should. No, no, no. It's I should. I need to. I will. Make it real personal. Apply it to myself. Make sure the application is practical. In other words, it's measurable. Impossible, something I can do, and then it's provable. Set a deadline. 
couple of examples that you might have as an example of what we studied. Number one, this is a possible example. Think about ways to honor people this week who model these qualities. Maybe it's in your kids. You see something, one of those characteristics. Commend them on that. Look for that. Build it up. Maybe your dad. It could be a husband or a boyfriend, whatever. Or a Christian friend you know. The Bible says honor those people so you can at least encourage them in that. Speak something positive into their lives. Here's a really good one. The second application that you could do. Ask which of these five qualities do I need to work on most this week? See, it's defined by a time frame. Which one am I weakest on? Do I need to be more considerate? Do I? Do I need to be more courageous for the cause of Christ? Have I kind of got comfortable? Do I need to be more caring and think about other people, not just think about my own agenda and my business deal and my needs? Do I need to cooperate, actually be more part, fully involved with my heart, not just my body, show up and fully support a team? Maybe it's a small group. So you write down which of the ones you're going to work on because the world desperately needs men and women of God who are caring and consistent and cooperative and considerate and courageous. Perhaps at the beginning you wondered if this passage had anything to say. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for men and women in this church who've proven they are worthy of honor by caring for more than just their own businesses, their own affairs, or themselves. For those who've been consistent and served you in the tough times as well as the easy times, thank you for those who've been cooperative and have been in small groups and served as brothers and as co-workers, and as fellow soldiers. Holy Spirit, would you energize and help every man and every woman in this room to be more courageous for your cause? To be willing to sacrifice and serve like Epaphras was. If that's what it takes. To be willing to do whatever it takes to strengthen your church from coming early to serve with the teams that set up the auditorium, the sound, the children's ministries, the creche, hospitality, to preparing to warmly welcome those who are visiting, to pack down and to weekly as a small group host to encourage spiritual growth and fruit, to take their next step perhaps in giving time, giving talent or giving treasures. Or maybe it's even to go to another country and serve, if that's what it takes. Holy Spirit, help us to be considerate of each other's fears, weaknesses and differences. And may we model Timothy and Epaphras' heart for you. Motivate us to change, to be more like your son Jesus. We ask us in his powerful and matchless name. And everybody said, Amen. God bless. Church, will you stand with me and respond?